Well, good morning. I have what I need. It's good to see you. It's good to be together. Uh, keep Zephaniah chapter 3 open. Have you ever heard a sermon on Zephaniah before? Well, today, this is going to be a good one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word. Uh, we thank you for this Advent passage that points us towards the coming of the Lord Jesus. Help us today to understand what it is you have to say for us and to know clearly, unambiguously and rightly and truthfully where we stand with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, is it a lovely thing to have God with you? Is it a lovely thing to have God with you? We wish it on each other all the time, whether we realise it or not. It's one of those words that we use constantly without ever knowing really the meaning behind it. Like most of our greetings, uh, we, we don't really mean it, right? Good morning, you say to someone. No, it's not. They say, well, like, okay, sure. Or, or the classic, how are you? You know the right answer to how are you, don't you? I'm well, thank you for asking, right? What's the wrong answer to how are you? Well, I'm about to have my arm amputated. I've gone bankrupt. My house has been foreclosed on. And last night, by accident, I set fire to the dog, right? You, you just... It's one of those greetings we say it all the time. You are going to say it to people as you leave today. Goodbye, you're going to say. Now, what are you saying when you say goodbye? Well, it's just the short and firm that form that we've kind of mangled over time of God be with you. God by you. It's a blessing that you're uttering on somebody else. As you go, may God go with you. What a lovely thing to say to each other, isn't it? Or is it? As we come to Christmas time... We're going to celebrate, no end it seems, Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to sing it over and over again. If you were here Sunday night last week, we sang 16 carols in a row, right? And so many of them about Emmanuel, God with us. And you know how the carol goes, right? Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come. But should we rejoice? Is it a lovely thing for God to be with you? Now, of course, Christmas time, the postcard picture of the smiling baby, of course it's lovely to have a baby with you, isn't it? But what about this picture in Zephaniah 3? Now, we've kind of finished Genesis for now. If, if you're wondering what happened, we got to Genesis 25, we finished the Abraham story, and we're going to pick Genesis back up again, probably in 2020. Okay, so not next year, just hold on to that thought. Don't forget where we're up to. We're going to come back to it. It's okay, we'll do a recap then, just in case you forget. And in January, we're going we're gonna to start something else through January. So we've kind of got today as this little once-off. I picked Zephaniah 3 as one of our Advent readings. And in Zephaniah, the first two chapters are all about judgment. Chapter 1, judgment falls upon Judah, upon God's own people. Because of their idolatry, because of their corruption, because they've basically turned their back on the God who bought them. Chapter 2, that judgment spills out from Judah onto the nations. And God's wrath is just, oh, I'm going to destroy them all, for they are wicked. And then we come to chapter 3. And chapter 3, verse 1, begins like this. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. Judgment continues. But we're left wondering, what city? 
Who is this city of oppressors? Who is it that God's judgment is going to fall on? At the end of chapter 2, it was Nineveh. I'll just look back to the end of chapter 2 from verse 13. God will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind. The desert owl, the screech owl will roost on her columns. Their calls will echo through the windows. Rubble will be in the doorways. The beams of cedar will be exposed. Right? Just a picture of, of this massive metropolis of a city so utterly laid to waste that the wild animals are living in it. Verse 15 of chapter 2. This is the carefree city that lived in safety. She said to herself, well, I am, and there is none beside me. What a ruin she has become. A lair for wild beasts, all who pass by her scoff and shake the fists. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. And so we're thinking, right, it's Nineveh. Nineveh's the people that God's got it in for. They're wicked, fair call, God should destroy them, right? Chapter 3, verse 2. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She doesn't trust in the Lord. She doesn't draw near to her God. God wasn't the God of Nineveh. I mean, he was in the sense that there's only one true God. He was in the sense that all of this world is his, but not in the relational sense. There was no reason for Nineveh to trust the Lord. There was no reason for Nineveh to draw near to her God because God wasn't her God. No, this is a judgment upon Jerusalem, upon God's people again. God's people. Ouch! Because you're thinking it's Nineveh. You're thinking it's the wicked ones. And judgment is going to fall upon God's people. Why? Verses 3 and 4. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are arrogant, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. Let me just think for a moment of the picture of that, that country, that nation and the city within it. If you've ever been part of a culture where government and power is corrupt. I mean, look, however bad you may think our politics are, in the world scale, we've got it pretty good. If our pollies take bribes, usually they get caught. If they act corruptly, it's not long before it's in the papers and they're being called to account and there's a royal commission and it all, right, it all goes down. The country where I grew up, Argentina... The president at the time when I was there was both stealing the government money and selling weapons internationally so that he could get the money from that as well. And, like, and the list just goes on and on. Like he's, he's jailed now, 15 years later, but jail for him means just living in his mansion with all his buddies. The sort of life that lives when government is corrupt is horrible. A bribe will get you much further than righteousness. They devour others for their own gain instead of ruling for power. But it's worse. I'm going to use that word worse quite a lot, by the way. Just FYI, because it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. Verse 4, we said, the prophets are arrogant, treacherous men. They are supposed to be bringing the word of God. They are supposed to stand steadfast in the midst of whatever may come. They are the ones you're supposed to be able to trust. 
For they ought to speak for God himself, and yet here they are, full of treachery. But it's worse still. The priests, the ones there to mediate between man and God, the ones there to bring sacrifice in the temple, the ones there to preach the law of Moses to the people, what are they doing? Profaning the sanctuary and doing violence to the law. These are supposed to be God's people. They're the nice churchgoers, if you like. But inside, they are so, so, so far. Is it a lovely thing to have God with you? Look at verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous and does no wrong. God was there. He was with these people. He was with Israel. And if you just took that verse, it would be lovely. It'd be motivational picture. You know, you, know, you, you, you get a, a wolf carrying a fluffy bunny in its mouth or something with rolling green hills behind it. And you put the verse up the top of it. The Lord is righteous and does no wrong. And you think, how lovely is that? Morning by morning, he dispenses justice. Every new day, he does not fail. See, it's lovely, except that the people in the midst of whom he is are unrighteous and evil and wicked. And justice is not a nice thing when that's the sort of person you are. In fact, the end of verse 5, the unrighteous know no shame. You know, in some ways, I almost think that shamelessness... To have no shame is worse than hypocrisy. Let me explain it. The hypocrite says, these things are bad and these things are good. And we should all do these good things. But I'm going to go and do the bad ones. But at least they acknowledge that there's good and evil. At least they acknowledge that some things are right. And that you ought to do the right things, even if I'm not doing them. Whereas the shameless person just says, I'm going to go do what's wrong. Right? It's just... Come with me. Let's celebrate this wickedness that we can go and do. And I'll tell you what, I think that's our culture now. I went to the butcher on Monday. Uh, and my, my Bible study group had a spit roast on Wednesday night to celebrate at the end of the year. Just another little plug for our Bible study groups, right? You might end up in one that does spit roasts. Anyway, uh, it was there Monday. I was going to buy a nice big three and a half kilos of pork and another kilo and a half of beef just for good times. And the butcher was very kind, and he carried, they, they lend you a spit, right? They've got a really nice little one that's very well custom made. Anyway, uh, Roos, family butchers, if you need a, a little tip. Anyway, the bloke carries it out for me very kindly, and, uh, and on the way, he just starts telling me about the previous customer I was in there. Oh, yeah, I recognised him. Oh, we were at the same party last night. I thought, oh, it was a bit hard to recognise him with his shirt on, because <laughs> he was a bit plastered last night. I tell you what, whew. But, um, I mean, you know, I was a bit too, you know, it was, it was a bit hard for me to recognise him, because I was a bit, hey, but, and we're just celebrating. Utterly shameless. Wasn't it great? That I was just completely wasted. Sozzled. I mean, you, you can use, it's funny, isn't it? You just put whatever word you want there, and it's just utterly shameless. And that's our culture. It's not even just there's right and there's wrong, and you ought to do the right thing. And no, it's just come and let's enjoy anything. 
Is it a lovely thing to have God with you? It doesn't stop, by the way. Verse 6. I have cut off nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I've left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are destroyed. No one will be left. No one at all. I have destroyed other nations, God says. Wiped them off the face of the earth. But surely my city would act better. Verse 7, I said to the city, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling would not be cut off, nor all my punishments come upon They had the word of God. They had the warning. Judgment is coming. They had the proclamation of the Lord God Almighty. Turn back to me that I may have mercy on you or else. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. It really is the, the nature of sin, isn't it? The character of sin, that, that commitment to evil. Yeah, well, as long as I can get away with it. I mean, that eagerness to do wrong. I couldn't help but think about the cricket. And, you know, the ball tampering scandal and all that. And as long as I can get away with it. I mean, that moment when you get caught... You just imagine that sinking feeling. You know it, right? I mean, at the very least when you were a child, if not since, you've done the wrong thing, you were thinking you're going to get away with it, and then someone just says, and you just, why did I do that? How dumb was it? But the next week you're going to do it again. Right? Eager, eager. And so God says, wait for me, verse 8. For the day I will stand up to testify, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Wait, because judgment is coming. Now the fact that God hasn't judged yesterday doesn't mean that he won't tomorrow the fact that we are alive in sin today doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter it doesn't mean that God can't see oh he hasn't acted so clearly I can keep getting away with it and I'll just do whatever it is that I want it doesn't mean that we will not be called to account If you know yourself to still be part of this rebellious city, back turned towards the God who calls to you, then be afraid. It is a fearful thing. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Is it a lovely thing to have God with you? No. Absolutely not. If you are part of that rebellious city, then he will come and judge. But it doesn't really make for a good Christmas carol, doesn't it? Rejoice. No. Be afraid. Be afraid. Doesn't really work, does it? Because as we come to Christmas, there is reason to rejoice. 
Because this is a tale of two cities, not just the rebellious city, but also the restored city. Do you notice the change in verse 9? All of a sudden, it just transitions. Boom, verse 9. Then will I purify the lips of the peoples, that all may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. See, the God who is present amongst them in judgment is also going to include salvation and not just salvation to them, but salvation to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 10 from beyond the rivers of Cush, right? The, the ends of Africa at that point from beyond the ends of the world. My worshippers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. It's, it's almost the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that story? We did it in Genesis 11. Back then, God Undid, he, made, he gave them unclean lips, he, he broke the language up, and then he scattered them. And now he brings them and gives them pure lips again, that they may speak to him. In fact, he changes them. Verse 11, on that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done me, because I will remove from the city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. See, it's the opposite of those who have no shame, who are shameless. These are the people whose shame is removed, whose guilt is done away with, who have nothing to be ashamed of. And so, verse 13, the remnant will do no wrong. Isn't that brilliant? They will speak no lies. Nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. How good is that? I mean, what a picture of this restored city of God's people in harmony and fellowship with him. Listen as I read through the next little bit. Just this fantastic picture of life restored by God sing O daughter of Zion shout aloud O Israel be glad and rejoice with all your heart O daughter of Jerusalem the Lord has taken away your punishment he has turned back your enemy the Lord the king of Israel is with you never again will you fear any harm on that day, they will say to Jerusalem, don't fear, O Zion. Don't let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God's going to sing Christmas carols about us. What an astonishing picture. Is it a lovely thing to have God with you? Well, yes. If you're part of that city, if you're part of the remnant, part of the humble, part of those who have been cleansed by God, that he might delight over you. Right, verse 20, at that time, God says, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honour and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. When? At that time. Okay, when? I mean, it's pretty good. I like it. When's it going to be? Now, some of this happened in history. 
Nineveh was wiped out practically overnight. It went from being one of the major cities of the world to just being rubble. And Israel was, was kind of sort of restored after they got taken off into exile and then came back again. And, but not really. Sort of, kind of. When? Well, not until Emmanuel. Not until God truly came to be among us. Come to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. It's page 671 if you've got one of these pure Bibles. Isaiah chapter 9. Here is another prophet who looking forward saw that same day. He saw it very differently. Not about the restoration of the city in the same way but about the birth of a child. Isaiah chapter 9 from verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. When is that day that Zephaniah spoke of? When Israel would be restored, when the judgment would fall upon the ungodly, but at the same time salvation would come to a remnant of God's people. Well, it was when a baby was born, strangely. Born in Bethlehem, born in humble circumstances, born and then named Jesus. The baby who grew up, he didn't stay a baby, might surprise you to find out. He grew up and grew in stature before man and before God. He was humble and obedient. He knew his father and his father's will. And in his obedience, he went even to his death. God's chosen forever king. God's own son. God himself entered into our world to die. And that death is at once the moment of judgment upon the world and salvation for God's people. Yeah, that's the day. That's that time that God was speaking of. That's the moment that the new kingdom begins, that the new city has begun. That is the fulfillment of Zephaniah 3. Not in Palestine. We're not waiting somehow for the Middle East to sort itself out and for all of this to happen still down there. It happened in Jesus. It brings with it a warning and an encouragement and a promise for the future that rings true today still. 
Is it lovely? Is it a lovely thing to have God with you? Well, if you're part of the rebellious city, the answer is clearly no. If that's you, if you, if you know yourself still to be wicked, to be shameless, to be eager to sin, to be somebody who will not accept correction, who will not listen when God says, come back to me, then may God have mercy on you. Flee. Flee to Jesus today. Flee to Jesus right now. Flee before the destruction overtakes you. Is it a lovely thing to have God with you? Well, if you know and you love and you trust and you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are part of that restored city, then yes, yes indeed. God rejoices over you. God sings with delight about you. You are now a citizen of the heavenly city. We're still waiting for it to come down. We're citizens living in exile. We're citizens living in a faraway land. And so be strong. Be courageous. Endure until the coming down of that city. But know that you belong to it. Is it a lovely thing to have God with you? Well, it's the loveliest thing of all. And so I'm going to finish this sermon unusually, actually. I'm going to finish it by saying goodbye. Goodbye.